Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Hello, hello. Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be with you on another Friday. I trust you had a good holiday. For those who had holidays, I was belatedly informed last week after talking on the show about the long weekend that, in fact, it was not a long weekend in Quebec. So to our Quebec listeners... (laughs) Sorry about that, um, but I know you get other holidays, including Saint Jean Baptiste Day, so um, which my my uh, my nieces go to French school, and I know they celebrate. So uh, anyway, uh, I stand corrected, uh, but stand with you today. Um, as you know, uh, all summer long, it's a bonus two hours, so you get me today from noon to two. Uh, the first hour, we're going to talk to some newsmakers. Uh, there's some big stories happening in this country. One, we're going to talk to a flight attendant, as mentioned before the break, um, who has been stuck in the Dominican Republic for reporting. They reported a crime. The authorities took advantage of it, and they've been stuck in the Dominican Republic for 120 days, 120 days with no end in sight. And they want the government to do more. So we're going to talk to them directly about that. It's a it's a crazy story. Um, you should definitely tune in. Uh, what they've been through is something uh, incredible to hear. And hopefully we can bring some attention to it. Uh, also, we're going to talk about the health care crisis in this country. And I'm going to get into it a little bit. Um, but I think that's a, it's an important conversation happening, certainly here in Ontario. But I know from, from my background research from talking to folks, it's also happening in B.C. It's also happening in Quebec. Uh, and we're also going to talk about Ukraine. Uh, as you know, it's not always top of the news for folks anymore, but it's an important issue that I think we need to keep attention to. There is a war happening in, in Europe right now, and our Prime Minister went and opened opened the embassy to great fanfare in May. And you won't actually believe what happened there <laughs> since. Uh, since and that Well, certainly there's a surprise to me, too, when I learned of this this week, what the status of our embassy is in Kiev. So we'll talk about that. But getting into the healthcare crisis, we do, Evan does a bit of a rant off the top usually in the week, and I'm going to do a bit of a rant today. Um, there's been tons of news about this all week long, uh, particularly in Ontario, but I know across the country, uh, what is happening with their healthcare system. And this really caught my attention personally because uh, my mom's a nurse. Um, was a nurse, I should say. She's retired now. But I remember as a little girl, um, you know, watching her go to work. And she worked 12-hour shifts when I was a kid. She had to commute into the office, which was a half an hour, 40 minutes every day. So, I mean, she was away from us for 13, 14 hours, right? And I'm, some of we were in school. But my mom worked um, in critical care, in um, CCU coronary care. But she was in, in the hospital doing those tough jobs. So I have a real soft spot um, in appreciation for the work that our nurses do uh, in this country, um, and they've done forever. It's a tough job. Um, it's a physical job that I don't think people realize. It's a mental job. If you've ever been through anything with family members in hospital, which I've unfortunately had to, had to do in the last few years, um, you just come to appreciate what our nurses do. Um, as some of you also know from the show, I'm, you know, I'm pregnant right now, right? So I'm in, I'm in the, uh, I'm in the healthcare system every couple of weeks talking to, yes, talking with my obstetrician. But actually, I can tell you right now, it's the nurses that do the lion's share of the, the chatting. No, no, no shade to my lovely OB. Um, and they are, they're the backbone of that system. They're the people that I ask the questions to. They're the people that I feel comfortable with. So I think when they cry out, as we've been seeing in this country, we need to listen. And there's some issues we have here, obviously. Some of it is baked into our system from the pre-pandemic. You know, I think we have to look at how we actually run our system. We pay doctors like it's their own businesses, right? They, they, they invoice, they get paid out, they get paid per surgery, they get paid per event. Um, nurses have salaries. Nurses are treated differently. Is that the right system we should have in place? Some of it is pandemic fatigue. Uh, we're all overworked, but I think in particular our healthcare system and our healthcare workers have a right to be overworked. Um, they're exhausted from COVID. And now all of a sudden, can you imagine working like crazy as you had, wearing those, you know, 
suits with masks and goggles and everything. And now it's told, okay, you can't rest. You have to play catch up. Right. And I think some nurses and understandably and doctors are looking at that and saying, I'm not interested. And some of it is a media campaign. And I can tell you, because my day job, as many of you know, is a navigator. I do these sorts of things is watching the rollout of this, watching uh, watching how the, the role of polling, of press conferences, we had Jagmeet Singh speaking on this yesterday, I believe. You know, it's a very concerted role to bring this to people's attention. It's deliberate. It's by the associations and the unions. I actually don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's important that we have this conversation as a country. I think it's important that we have this conversation on this show. And I think there's a real issue around, frankly, just if we look at any industry, we're seeing this in restaurants, but particularly in healthcare, is recruitment. We don't make it easy for people with foreign credentials to be nurses here in this country or doctors for that matter. Um, and we should, we should do better in Ontario. There's something called bill 124. Uh, it limits salary increases for, for public sector workers, but particularly for healthcare workers to 1%. That's going to expire soon. But to me, that is crazy. It, what's inflation at now? 7%, six. And we're limiting a, like a salary increase to 1%. Now, obviously, it's up to, to hospitals and folks to negotiate with those, but I think the nurses have every right, and if I were there, I would be losing my mind about that bill and the fact that I've been restricted given all the work that they've done. And then I think, we, as mentioned earlier, we need to look at compensation for nurses. How are we paying them? Um, the average salary differs, but you know, nurses make around 70 to 80K a year. Is that fair? I don't know. Because here in Ontario, there's a new survey that says 7 in 10 nurses say they're unable to provide patient care due to lack of resources. One in two Registered professional nurses are considering leaving the profession for good. So the premier was out of Ford in Ontario was out to answer this. And this is what he had to say. Oh, do we have the clip, Tony? Oh, we don't. Okay, there's a bit of a technical difficulty there, so that's fine. Um, but they also basically announced acceleration of approval of credentials, So, uh, which is important. But he basically kind of said it's the system's not perfect, but it's continuing to go and, you know, We'll, we'll try to get better. I'm not sure if that's an answer that's going to work. Um, BC has similar issues, right? In June, BC Premier Horgan said they're teetering on the verge. There was a wave of resignations in northern BC, including half the doctors and intensive care units in the area's biggest hospitals. That's crazy. Uh, you know, there's a doctor shortage up there. More than a million people are without a family physician in BC right now. So I think in Canada, we like to talk about healthcare in this country as a bit, you know, we're very proud about it. Our chest puffs up. You can get universal access. And that is important um, because I've watched videos of mothers who say, hey, I gave birth to my baby and it cost me $14,000 in hospital fees. I can't imagine having to make a decision between, you know, taking care of my child, taking care of myself, or can I pay my rent, right? We don't have to make those choices in this country. And I think we should be grateful for that. And we should continue to be grateful for that. But I also think this conversation should be bigger, we should talk about slaying these sacred cows. Is it? Is it okay just to have everybody have access to it? Should we actually talk through the challenges in the system, the lack of proper funding, um, the you know the issues that we have? I think we do have to have that conversation. The doctor shortage. You know, there's one story of a woman in BC. She's been searching for a doctor for a year to refill her 82-year-old husband's prescriptions, and she can't find one. Um, that's crazy to me, and I think that's what. That's what the conversation is being forced here. You know, I also think we have to take a look at ourselves in the mirror and say, is this, is this the healthcare system we want as a country? You know, for example, the Fraser Institute did a study. They ranked as second last for acute care beds, 25 out of 26 countries, with 2.1 beds per 1,000 people. By comparison, for example, South Korea has nearly four times as many beds, eight per 1,000 th- per people, while well, Japan has about almost six per 1,000 people. So 
We're second last in acute care beds. We also rank near the bottom of the pack when it comes to physicians available, which makes sense because there's a shortage, right? 26 out of 28. So I think as a country, what we need to be doing here is have a conversation with each other, with our politicians, to hold them to account, to say, is this good enough for us? Because it's not good enough for me. And it certainly isn't good enough for our nurses or our doctors right now when we're hearing from them. And that's a fair conversation to have. And we can have that conversation without, I think, without challenging the idea that universal health care is not important. We can also look at, I know it's a scary third rail in politics, but we already have private sector providing resources. Do we need to talk about integrating that more? Do we need to say, is that going to take some of the, the weight off of our off of our doctors and nurses? How do we how do we ensure that um, how do we ensure that our doctors get that all the Canadians get the support that they need? So we were all banging pots through the pandemic, and that's great. And that was nice, and those were good photo ops. Well, I sat in my condo, and people worked like crazy. But I think as a country, what we actually need to do is have that conversation, push that com- push that conversation, echo what we're hearing from our health care, to challenge our politicians to say, is this good enough? Should the feds step in? It used to be a 50-50 split when this was first designed and finding between the feds and the provinces. It's down to the 20% for, for feds, 22%, uh, and you know everything else is born by us. So that's my rant. We should have this conversation. We're going to continue to have this conversation on the show. But next up, we're going to talk about a different issue that we've been covering. There's been travel troubles all summer long. Huge story. But is there a light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to Canada's biggest airport? A travel expert joins us next for that update. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we take you into the weekend with the biggest stories of the week and certainly some of the biggest talkers of the week. And this story has been something we've been covering on the show for the whole year. Um, travel st- travel troubles are not new to any of you. Uh, certainly there's been challenges at our airports. There's been challenges with our passports. Uh, there have been, you know, endless stories about this and we've certainly debated it on the show, but it looks like, it looks like there may be a silver lining for you folks. If folks are wondering, should they get on that flight? Um, Toronto Pearson Airport had a progress update on the straight, the state of their travel hub today. The update was provided by Chief Executive Officer and President of the GTA, the Greater Toronto Airport, Deborah Flint. Um, and she says the data shows the airport is improving week over week. Here's Flint. Airline on-time performance across the airport increased to 44% of all flights being on time. This is not a number that I would normally tout at all. But given where we have been for the last four weeks and even before that, improving from 35% is substantial. She also added that CATSA has hired, and that's obviously the security uh, screening, has hired hundreds of new employees to screen at Pearson, and that is making a difference to lineups. The latest statistics that CATSA has provided indicate that 82% of passengers are now being screened in less than 15 minutes. That's a marginal improvement, even week over week of 1%, but a more substantial improvement from the beginning of summer and spring. So joining me to break this down, and if this is in fact the it's not perfect, but it certainly sounds better, is John Gradick. He's a faculty lecturer and academic programs coordinator in aviation management at McGill University, and of course he previously worked in senior roles at Air Canada. 
Canada. John, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Amanda. John, so is this sounds pretty good. It, I mean, it doesn't sound perfect, as, as Ms. Flint points out. No, it's Movement. not perfect. Um, should we be <laughs> should we be looking at the road urging? I don't know. I, you know, I, it's it's frustrating that this has been going on for for months. Uh, you know, and you know, while while Deborah this morning made it very clear that there are some signs of things improving, uh, it is by no means you know what it, what Pearson should be operating at. And, I, you know, I kind of, I'm a little upset that, you know, Deborah basically was trying to take the heat from, you know, the media on this one. And as much as she seemed to be taking responsibility for some of these actions that are going on to cause these problems to happen. And, you know, there's not much that she could have done other than what she's doing, which is coordinating all of these activities. You know, CATSA, CBSA, you know, the, the Arrive Can app, all of those things have been pointed at and have been progressively fixed. But, you know, the airlines uh, are still the ones that, as far as I'm concerned, that really have not, you know, come to the plate to, in fact, improve the way in which they operate. There are still, you know, too, too many flights booked up to flights. There, there are too many stacked up airplanes. The airplanes are not being maintained properly. They're breaking down, and it's impacting Pearson. John, what do you, do you are you saying that this is not on the airport so much, but it's on airlines and the government? So, what do you think needs to change? Well, I think you know, I think Deborah's being very valiant and basically, you know, putting up the face of of what Pearson is all about, which is true. She is the representative of the GTAA, but the, you know, the root cause of all this stuff is really still the airlines' responsibility. And I have I have yet to hear, you know, from the airlines uh, in terms of what it is that's really caused this issue. Uh, to take responsibility and to give me some fixes because I'm not hearing it from the airlines. And, I, you know, Air Canada's quarterly report this week and their, their, their meetings, yeah, they said, well, you know, we may have been a little too aggressive in terms of what we were doing. It's not a little bit too aggressive. It's way too aggressive, and it still continues today. So there have we've seen in other airports around the world, for example, uh, Heathrow, where you know they've rolled back on the number of flights and those sorts of things. Is that something that you you think needs to be done in order to sort of level this, or is the yeah, kind of the gradual I, improvements we're seeing from the GTA enough? Yeah, the GTAA hasn't been you know hasn't stood its ground in terms of what it is that's defining the capacity that the airport can handle, uh, whether it's Frankfurt, whether it's Amsterdam, whether it's London, whether it's Paris. They've all instituted limits in terms of the number of passengers, i.e. the number of airplanes that can fly into and out of the terminal. Toronto has not done that. And I think that that's where we end up in a situation where, you know, the airport might be in a conflict of interest situation with the airlines because the more passengers that come through Pearson, the more money Pearson makes, the GTAA makes. So I'm not sure it would be in their best interest at this point in time to basically limit the number of passengers they're basically very happy with the number of passengers. However, the level of service and the disruption the passengers are being subjected to at Pearson as a result of all this is, is something that, you know, inexcusable. And I certainly think we've seen that across the country. Just interesting to me to see 
you know, them come out and basically say, listen, we're not perfect, but things are getting better. And here's the improvement here. You know, 82% of passengers being screened less than 15 minutes to me is, is, is significant. Um, you know, one of the other points they made is that uh, average wait time for bags for domestic travel is 24 minutes from to arrive. Um, and that's continuing to improve. So do you think this is going to get out to passengers and they'll start to, because I know I've talked to friends who have said, you know, I'm not going to fly, I'm going to drive, um, other sorts of things. Do you think people will, like, maybe be a little less nervous about going back to maybe flying through some of Canada's airports, or will that continue to be a challenge? Well, yeah, I, I think at Pearson it will continue to be a challenge because, you know, going at 44% on-time arrival performance for a major international hub like Pearson, totally unacceptable. You know, you should be up in the 80% range, 75 80 85%, because things do go bump in the night. But to be up 44% and take, you know, and be happy with that number, as Deborah said, it's not great, it's an improvement, but we still got a long way to go to basically get people reassured that flying to, from, or through Pearson is, is going to be a pleasant experience. And that is not happening today. And if you're just joining me right now, this is John Gradek, faculty lecturer and academic programs coordinator in aviation management at McGill University. He also previously worked for Senior Rolls at Air Canada. I did want to ask you one question unrelated to the airport per se, but certainly in this space. There's been a lot of criticism of the Arrive Can app and how it holds people back, and it's, it's a bit more performative. Do you think... That tool useful, or do you think that that should go by the wayside as far as travel in this country? Well, far be it for me as an aviation lecture professor to basically comment on the Mariah Can <laughs> public health public health tool. So I'll leave it to the public health officials to basically look at it. But you know, from from what I see, the Arrive Can app is here to stay. I think you know the number of ministers in Trudeau's cabinet that basically yeah. said, "Well, this Arrive Can app is very useful to us." And it is Big Brother watching, uh, and it is basically looking at trying to manage, you know, the information and the type of people that are coming across the border. So it is an additional public security tool, not just public health. So, you know, the government's going to have to make a decision, you know, is this a public health tool or is it more of a public security tool? And the, the statements we're getting, I'm hearing, is that, you know, right now it's morphing from public health to public security and for that reason, it will probably stay. All right. Uh, that's John Gradek, uh, faculty lecturer and academics, an academics program coordinator in aviation management at McGill University. He previously worked for Senior Rolls at Air Canada. John, thank you always for coming on the show and sharing your expertise. Uh, my, my pleasure, Amanda. Have a great day. Take care. You too. Have a great weekend. All right. So you heard it from him. It's, it's improving. It's okay, but not perfect. Uh, and I think that's the message I heard, at least from Deborah Flint, the CEO of, of GTA today, is that things are getting better, um, but they're not, you know, where they'd like them to be. So, for example, today she referenced the fact that the performance across um, on-time flights, 44% of all flights are being on time. That's improved from 35% for in the last four weeks. So, you know, not perfect, but a good improvement. CATSA has provided that 82% of passengers are now being screened in less than 15 minutes. So if you're worried about those long security lines, they're improving, not like not huge, but it's still better. And of course, if you're worried about getting your bags, average wait for domestic, 24 minutes for those bags to arrive on the carousels. And it's continuing to improve, she says. So I see, I like to travel. Um, I want to get back to this. I've certainly flown through Pearson and had a pretty decent experience, but I know others haven't. So there's there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel and progress being made at Canada's major airport. Speaking of travel, though, a Canadian air crew has been, have you heard this story? It's crazy. Have been stranded in the Dominican Republic for 120 days. 120 days. 
What is the Canadian government doing to get them home? We'll speak to a member of that crew next on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where all summer long you get an extra special hour of me, so noon to two. Uh, and the first hour we talk to talk to newsmakers, to um, you know analysts, to people that break down some of the biggest stories uh, in the country. Um, and certainly this is... Uh, a huge story that um, I actually personally, I'll, I'll, I want to, I like to disclose when I have some conflicts. As we know, I have a day job um, with a communications firm called Navigator, um, and we do all kinds of, of different work. But one of the things that I've been working on for a little while um, is trying to help a Canadian air crew come home um, from the Dominican Republic. And uh, there's been, uh, you know, news today again about it. They've been stuck down there for 120 days. And I'll let them uh, talk to you about it. Uh, certainly, we're going to have hopefully one of the flight attendants on, as well as the CEO of the airline. But in effect, uh, this crew, um, it was a charter plane. They were in the Dominican Republic preparing to fly back to Canada. They had, uh, you know, were doing their normal checks, found a bag in the plane, took a look at it, looked like there was contraband, immediately reported to Dominican authorities, immediately reported to Canadian authorities, and yet somehow they've ended up stranded there, have not been able to come home. And the Dominican um, justice system, as you can imagine, has, has failed us, failed them horribly um you know they continue to have the threat to go back to jail which was a tremendously challenging experience for them they're going to talk about that today and also i want to talk about what the canadian government is or is not doing so joining me uh on the show right now is eric Evanson. he's the ceo of pivot airlines uh who obviously uh were responsible for the charter and of course christina Corello. she's a flight attendant for pivot and she's stuck in the dr right now so eric and christina thanks for coming on the show hi good afternoon Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for having us. Um, Very important story. Thank you. Of course. Of course. Christina, I know you you haven't spoken out a ton, but maybe we'll start with you. So Christina is obviously a flight attendant. She's been stuck in the Dominican Republic. Um, How are you doing? How how has this been for you? You've been stuck there for over 120 days now. I mean, I'm okay, but I'm not happy about the situation. Um, I just, at this point, want to get home. It's been too long now. And... Can you just tell us a little bit about what happened that day? You, you know, you were getting ready to do a typical job. You, you know, you've been flight attendant on many flights before, uh, and you know, looking through like other folks were looking through the plane, and things were discovered. And what happened on that on that tarmac that day? So basically, our mechanic had uh, an indication that he had to check. He went down there and saw. Uh, what appeared to be something in a bag. At that point, nobody knew what it was. He did his duty by telling our captain. Our captain then reported it to the company and authorities as they would typically when you find something that you don't know what is. We then got off the plane, uh, waited on the tarmac for a few hours as these black bags were coming off. At that point, we still did not know what it was. And then we waited some more hours in the terminal, and after that, around 6 o'clock at night, we were told we were being detained. 
for what appeared to be cocaine by, in those bags. And by detained, you were put in jail, and you were put in jail for reporting something. So, And how long, what was it like being in jail for that, Christina? What was that like for you? Completely awful. Um, it was inhumane conditions. Um, just it was not something that anybody doing their job should be going through. And Eric, as the CEO of the airline, you're obviously back in Canada and you've been advocating for your the crew um, to, to come home. Uh, what's the response been from, from the Canadian government so far? Uh, you know, the response has been um, underwhelming. I think we've gotten great response in the form of lip service. Uh, a lot of uh, attentive people that we've met with that, that like to hear the story and and uh, hang their heads low and, and promise that they're, they're, you know, the famous uh, were seized with this. Um, what we haven't seen any of is action and, you know, kind words and, and platitudes and, and feeling sorry are not going to bring uh, our crew, including Christina, home. Uh, one, one of the major issues, and, and I know you're going to get there, but I sometimes get ahead of myself, there's no witness uh, protection. There's no whistleblower protection in the Dominican Republic. There's no protection for either the person that reports the crimes, and if it has to do with organized crime or a cartel or, or what have you, there's no protection for the prosecutor who has to decide who they're going to look at for this crime. And that's why we think the government has an ability to get involved when you don't have an the right to protection if you report a crime, which our crew did in this case, you're in a lot of trouble if you're in a foreign country uh, because you are not protected. It's not like uh, in Canada where you report a crime and you have whistleblower protection and, and the people prosecuting you have protection from uh, all sorts of bad things happening to them if they go ahead with with either prosecuting you or prosecuting uh, you know an organized crime organization. It's, it's horrible and it's uh, exceptionally dangerous. And um, I know the crew has sent a letter uh, to the prime minister to ask for a meeting. Uh, what's that been the response? Uh, one of his delegates discussed, uh, had a meeting with their crew. We've had decent communication, I would say. I don't want to say they haven't been uh, communicating with us. Uh, again, what we haven't seen is any action. When you, when you look at the seriousness of this uh, issue, which doesn't only impact our crew, of course, that's the immediate case that brings this to light. And to me, that's what, the way it should be viewed from Canadians is that, hey, this really shone a spotlight on a, on a huge gap of safety for Canadian travelers to the Dominican Republic. If, if, if you're able to, or, or let's say you're, you're sitting in your, um, you know, in, in your, on your vacation at, at a resort and you witness a uh, homicide, and as a Canadian, I think your first instinct is to call the police. Those police show up, and guess what? If you're the only one there, if what happened to our crew happens to you, and that's very, very likely, uh, you're going to go to jail. And you're going to have all sorts of human rights violations uh, perpetrated against you. You're going to be uh, extorted, abused. You're going to be uh, held without food and water. And you may never come home. And not only that... When the when the prosecutor uh, looks to say who who are we going to hold responsible for this crime, if, if the person that committed that homicide that you reported on happened to be uh, a part of an organized criminal organization, guess what? It's going to be you. It's not going to be the organized crime organization because the prosecutor themselves have no protection. It's it's absolutely uh, uh, well, it, it's it's a travesty. 
And there has been a hearing on July 21st. The Dominican prosecutor at the time, as you mentioned, attempted to reverse the bail uh, and send uh, the crew, including yourself, Christina, back to jail. Um, There's another hearing expected on August 26th. Um, How do you feel, Christina, going into that hearing? I'm very nervous, actually. Like, um, I don't know what to expect. I just hope that the government can help us faster to get us maybe out of here before that date or do something. Yeah, because I, I understand they they could attempt to send you back to jail. So we've got about uh, about thirty seconds left, and maybe Christina, um, do you have a ma- if if the government you know, we, we broadcast coast to coast, Canadians are listening to you, millions of them, um, folks in government are listening to you. What's your message to them right now? If you're trying to, if you have a, you had their ear. My message to the government would be: please hurry up and get us out of here. We were doing our duty by reporting a crime. We've done nothing wrong. We need to come home. Okay. All right. Well, Christina, uh, certainly we're thinking of you. Um, the text board is you know, flooded with lots of uh, folks for support. Um, thinking of you that down there. And uh, thank you so much, Christina and Eric, for joining the show. We'll certainly keep an eye on the story uh, and uh, crossing our fingers for you that you'll be home soon. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. So that was Eric Edmondson, CEO of Pivot Airlines, uh, and Christina Corello, flight attendant for Pivot Airlines. Christina has been stuck in the Dominican Republic for over 120 days. Um, she and her crew members reported cocaine found on their plane and were uh, jailed. They've had no formal investigations and are asking the Canadian government for more help. So next up, we do our cross-country tour. We're going west, and I'm excited to take you through that. That's next on Free For All Friday. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Happy Friday, everyone. We're almost halfway through the show. Uh, And this is a fun segment we've been doing every week uh, which we call our Cross Canada Tour. We're visiting 13 provinces and territories, and every week we talk to a mayor of each of those provinces uh, to find out what's amazing about their capital, why you should visit if you haven't. Uh, this is Free for All Friday's Cross Canada Road Trip, and this week joining the show is Mayor Sandra Masters. She's a mayor of Regina, Saskatchewan. Uh, mayor Masters, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so I, I will confess, I've never been to Saskatchewan, so that is a crime um, that I, I, I'm, I'm willing to admit to. Uh, so tell me about your city. Tell me why I, we should be going to Regina on vacation this summer with my, with my partner. Uh, why should I get on that flight? You know what? Uh, between uh, We've got festivals that go uh, all summer. You know, We've got a folk festival that's been entertaining folks here for over 50 years. We've got our Queen City Exhibition actually going on right now for seven days, which uh, we, we tie things like uh, soccer events or rider games, uh, outdoor concerts into, in addition to all of the amazing fair food. We've got a winter city. We like to joke our winter city is better. Uh, we've got a frost festival that goes on in February. Uh, we've got a cathedral arts festival, which is a local um, kind of amazing community-based uh, festival. Uh, we, so if, if you're looking for that kind of thing, we've got that going on. Um, we've got a pretty iconic mosaic stadium. You can come to a Rough Rider game. It's kind of unlike anything you could experience across the country. We like to think we're the heart of the CFL. Um, we've got a Royal Saskatchewan Museum. It's home of Scotty, the world's largest T-Rex. 
uh, one of the gems of our city, of course, is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Depot is here, as well as the uh, uh, Heritage Centre. Um, there's a sunset ceremony that they do, which is unbelievably spectacular with, uh, with the recruits uh, in um, all their regalia um, and uh, some of the history around that. We've got uh, Saskatchewan Science Centre. It's one of the province's largest, you know, family tourist attractions connected to Saskatchewan's only IMAX theater. Uh, our symphony is Canada's longest continually operating orchestra. Uh, we we got a pretty great craft beer scene here. We have uh, we have we have more uh, breweries per capita uh, than anywhere else, and we've got a hop tour that you could go on if uh, you know beer is your thing. Um, in a, a historic uh, um, hotel, Saskatchewan, they do a, 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 a daily toast to prohibition. You can go uh, attend to. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, you, you want to go for hikes? We've got hikes. We, you know, we're we're surrounded by all of this farmland. It's really quite flat here, which in and of itself is a spectacular sort of view. But um, kind of unbeknownst to a whole bunch of people, is we've got more than half a million trees planted by hand, and, and Regina is one of only 120 cities globally that is in the United Nations Tree Cities of the World program. Um, so we work really hard at green space too. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's beautiful, hot here in the summertime. It's nice and crisply cold in the winter. Um, so uh, we, we like to think that we appeal to to all tastes. <laughs> well, I've got I've got to say, Mayor Masters, I have had you know we're, I've done them all the interviews because I've had some vacation, but you by far are the most prepped for like the pitch <laughs> off the top is why we need to visit, visit the city. I'm not even sure it's like there's a there's the largest T Rex. You have more beers per ca- or breweries per capita. Um, I just I'm overwhelmed by the need to go, and I actually would love, candidly, would love to go to a Rough Riders game. I'm not I'm I'm an NFL. I'll candidly say I'm an NFL fan partially because I grew up. Uh, around Windsor, Ontario. So a lot of like, you know, we had a lot of American TV, but um, watching, you know, Grey Cup games and sort of watching the the spirit of, of Rough Rider fans to me has always been sort of a really fun, uh, kind of fascinating, fascinating vibe. Uh, so um, other than the world's largest T-Rex and, uh, you know, all these other wonderful things about it, <laughs> there was, um, if there was a time of year we had to go to Regina, because uh, it's supposed to be cold out there. Um, when would, would Should I be afraid to go in the winter, or should I jump in because you have all these amazing festivals? You should, you should absolutely jump in. Uh, no one does ice sports like us. Uh, we, uh, we flood Mosaic Stadium and create, you know, North America's largest outdoor skating rink, and it's pretty incredible to be on the bowl. If you're a football fan, it's pretty incredible to skate on that ice and, and you know, be in that bowl in that stadium. Um, you know, summertime here, it's, it's honestly, it's it's really it's very relaxed. Uh, we have gorgeous patios overlooking our park. Um, uh, it's simple to get around in. And you can get almost anywhere uh, within whatever to like really quickly. And honestly, we love when people come to visit. We're we're incredibly hospitable, is the way I will say it. <laughs> Well, I, it sounds like for, when I ever have friends that are like from Saskatchewan, they're always like super, very down to earth and uh, and very lovely. So one of the things I do like to ask the mayors in this segment is the best place to eat because I've gotten amazing little tips. And I know our listeners love that. And also not what you would expect, particularly in the Northwest Territories and, and other places like that. So be candid. So if I were to if I land in Regina and I'm 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 a very pregnant woman right now, so I'm constantly hungry. Um, when where should I go to eat? Okay, so, like, I love food. Um, 
I can tell you where the best French fries are. I think it's Secure Kitchen and Bar. So they got killer chicken enchiladas. Their French fries are unbelievable. Um, it depends. You want you want sweets? We got Everyday Kitchen has sourdough donuts that are to die for. Milky Way ice cream is iconic. Uh, kind of walk up ice cream uh, site on Victoria Avenue. Uh, but I think what surprises people when they come is the kind of the breadth of food that you can have here. So, I mean, it's it's. Ethiopian to Thai to Nepalese to, you know, Beaks fried chicken. Um, we've got uh, Italian, Sylvia's Cafe, which is in the basement of a historic building. It's so incredible. Italian Star Deli. Like the lineup at lunch for their sandwiches is kind of crazy. And there's something about Regina-style pizza. Um, and it's, it's, so we got, we got Copper Kettle downtown, but we've got Western Pizza franchise and Houston Pizza franchises here. And People from Regina who move away will order this pizza and have it shipped all over the world. And I love these stories about they'll put a, they'll freeze a pizza from Western Pizza, put it in a, 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 a box, and send it to places like Japan because people miss the pizza from here. <laughs> um, what, what is Regina-style pizza? What does it involve? Um, well, it's, it's kind of got a, a, a sweeter tomato sauce and like a ton of meat. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, and, you know, we have a locally grown franchise here uh, called Leo's, and you can order buckets of bacon done in multiple different ways. Um, so if you like bacon, uh, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's pretty fun to have a beer and a bucket of bacon, um, not necessarily something you get everywhere. And uh, the, the Sky Bistro, which is connected to the, you know, the Science Center, and it's kind of nestled in Wascana Park, like Chief Milton Ribello is world class. Uh, we've got another one, uh, award-winning um, uh, chef at Dojo Ramen, who, uh, yeah, it's, it's just some of the best eating experiences you could have. All right. Uh, well, I got to say, Mayor, Sa- Mayor Masters, um, the text board, I literally just got one. This mayor is awesome. I'm on my way. This is Kim. So uh, I think you've, you've sold us. You've certainly sold me. I, my family loves bacon. So I imagine <laughs> if I told them they could get buckets of bacon, um, they'd be there. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining the show. Um, I'm definitely going to add Regina to my list of places to visit. And I hope you have an amazing rest of the summer. Thank you so much. You have you have an amazing summer as well, and good luck finding uh, something to eat today. <laughs> <laughs> right, take care. Talk soon. That was uh, Mayor Sandra Master. She's the mayor of Regina, Saskatchewan. And I got to say, um, I've never really wanted to visit. I mean, I've, I've been intrigued. I would go. Um, but she certainly sold me on, on visiting uh, Regina, particularly if I can have some of that amazing pizza. All right, well, Free For All Friday is next. We're going to get into the roundtable and deeper into issues like the country's health care crisis. Is Canada doing enough in Ukraine? And should Canadians have access to magic mushrooms if they're sick? Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday. 
This is the roundtable, hour-long roundtable. We talk to some of the smartest people in the country, some of the, the, the best talkers, the best newsmakers, about the biggest story in the week. And I've got to say, well, I love doing two hours with you every week. Uh, this second hour is always my favorite because I get to talk to some amazing people like the folks we have on today. Uh, we have Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel at National Public Relations and former Ontario Liberal Chief of Staff, and also Ryan Price, News Director and Afternoon Drive host on CFAX 1070 in Victoria, B.C. Bob and Ryan, welcome back to the show. Amanda, how are you? <laughs> excellent. I'm excellent. I am Ryan, also how is BC? Hello, Amanda. <laughs> Bob and I um, occasionally work together on political campaigns, only municipal because we're on opposite sides of the fence. So uh, we we have a I have a deep fondness for Mr. Richardson and always love it when he can come Aww. on the show. Aww. Thank you. <laughs> and you too, I'm Ryan. To I have a deep here. fondness for you too. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. It's actually it's been a while since I've been on because of summer vacations. I'm glad I could finally make it back. Yeah, no, it's good. Well, we also need that perspective from BC, right? We're in Ontario here. Bob and I are in Toronto, so the center of the universe needs to be told that places exist um, <laughs> other than other than Toronto. Uh, I, but speaking, uh, go ahead, Bob. I know it. I know it's almost mid-August, and you've run out of smart people. So I appreciate that you've put me on the air. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So speaking of big issues, uh, we talked about this in the first hour. I did a bit of a rant. Um, but there's been a huge conversation in this country uh, right now about the health care crisis. Um, and, you know, hospital departments across Ontario have been forced to shut their doors uh, and scale back hours in recent weeks due to staffing shortages caused by burnouts. Um, here, there's been a big, huge campaign uh, from nurses here in Ontario. Um, here's Rachel Muir. She's a nurse at the Civic Campus at the Ottawa Hospital. Talking to be this. honest, we are beyond crisis now, and we need to some serious short-term measures to prevent our healthcare system from collapsing completely. On Wednesday, uh, Premier Doug Ford touted billions in healthcare spending and says hiring more nurses is key. Ontarians continue to have access to the care they need when they need it. In fact, 9 out of 10 high urgency patients are finishing their emergency visit within targeted times. And, you know, he also, so this Premier Ford defending the issue, right, and saying, you know, while surges are happening, he says that nearly 95% of pre-pandemic rates, that news doesn't change the fact that there's pressures on our hospitals. That's why our government has added 3,100 new hospital beds, added over 10,500 more health care workers, including nurses, personal support workers. It's why we're working with the College of Nurses to add more inter- internationally educated nurses into the system. Now, this isn't just an Ontario issue. I want to move to this quickly before we get into the, the debate here. Uh, but in BC, there's a story. This is crazy. A woman is grateful her desperate plea to find a family doctor for her ailing husband has been answered. So Janet Mort had been searching for a year for a family doctor simply to fill prescriptions for her 82-year-old husband's. This is what she had to say. They're supposed to assist uh, patients with finding connections for doctors. I talked to them again this week, and and they they said that they had exhausted all all possibilities. So, this woman Janet has been without a doctor. Um, on Saturday, she took out an ad in the Times columnist newspaper seeking a practitioner for her husband. Um, and this is what she had to say here. And I started to cry right in the moment and said, I can't get a doctor, so how am I supposed to renew his prescriptions? 
So fortunately, she her ad grew, got so much attention, we're talking about it here today, that she got a doctor in the Victoria area, um, someone agreed to take him on. But maybe, Ryan, I'll go to you first on this one. Um, do you think our healthcare system is in a crisis in this country? Oh, no doubt. And it's funny, you, you were joking at the beginning that uh, it's good to have somebody from Victoria from the center of the universe where you guys are. But, you know, I feel like it's good sometimes the other way because we've been so deep into our own healthcare crisis here in Victoria, here in BC, that it's it's sometimes interesting to hear that this isn't just about us. Uh, the whole country is going through the same thing. And even our premier, uh, John Horgan, who was being grilled on this at a, at a scrum in a news conference earlier this week, his his defense, and I'm deeply paraphrasing here, but his defense seemed to be like, look, don't don't just blame me and my government. The whole country's dealing with this. Doesn't matter what political party you're you know you're being led by. So I I I'm paraphrasing again, but it's it's a good reminder, I think, for everybody that this is a bigger problem than just one province, just one healthcare system, even though these are provincial issues. I spoke to uh, Janet Mort, who you just played a clip from there, and I I believe her story is such a wonderful, just little slice of life, little example of what the problem is. And uh, just to elaborate on her story, because I think it's so fascinating, the way she told me is... Uh, her husband, they're both retired, they're both seniors. Her husband has some pretty complex medical issues and his doctor retired, leaving them with no other options. There are no family doctors, at least not in any kind of reasonable time that you can get in BC. I think it's probably the same in Ontario. Uh, so after trying and, and failing, they needed to fill these prescriptions that were coming up. Uh, they had been relying on this system that a lot of British Columbians are relying on. I don't know if Ontario has something like this, but the phone company here, TELUS, has created this online virtual doctor system. Uh, do you guys have anything like that? I don't. I don't use. I don't know. I have a family health team, so I have no idea. I've never used okay. one. Bob, do you use it? I. I, I <clears throat> Oh, we're having a hard time with Bob. Extensive uh, number of sort of health. Uh, fit. Oh, hello, can you hear me? We got you. You're good. Yeah. Uh, I know Telus has an ex extensive number of health services they deliver, uh, not not only in BC but here in Ontario too as well. Okay. So it is. I wasn't sure how widespread it was, but I mean, it's great that this private phone company is willing to create some sort of virtual doctor connection for people. And a lot of people are leaning on it to, to keep the crisis from getting worse. But even that is getting overburdened. And this uh, Janet Mort I was speaking to uh, tries to dial in to fill this urgent prescription that needs to be filled immediately for some pretty serious medical reasons. And she gets back that there are no appointments for the foreseeable future. It would be October before the first thing was opening up. That That is the situation she was faced with. And she herself, I think, is a PhD. She's a very established person. She's received the Order of BC. And not that that makes her any more uh, equal than anybody else, but still, I think there was the sense of even somebody like me <laughs> can get into this position. Uh, she took out this newspaper ad and she told me she did it with a bit of uncomfort, with a bit of shame almost, because she knew that, look, I'm I'm very privileged that I have the the means and the ability to take out a newspaper ad to plea my case. And not everybody has this. And luckily for her, she did get some help because of the newspaper ad. But she's also deeply aware that that is not an equitable system and something needs to be done. So I just wanted to retell that story in a bit more detail because I think it is exactly the answer to your question. Are we in a crisis? And I'd say after hearing that story, 
The answer is yes. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and frankly, good for her for thinking to take a newspaper at it. I wouldn't even think about that. Bob, what do you say? Um, look, I, I think we're in a, a very difficult situation, both here in Ontario and uh, and I, in British Columbia, too, as well. Uh, I, I'm not sure how productive it is to say that healthcare is collapsing, as a number of people do in this system. It's not. When 98% plus of uh, people are receiving, uh, as the Premier, uh, Premier Ford indicated, uh, you know, services in a reasonable period of time, uh, that is not a collapse of the service. So I think rhetoric tends to get ahead of reality sometimes um, in these in these jurisdictions. That's not to say that it is that it's a it's a great situation. The other thing that I I have to wonder is we're spending billions of dollars on healthcare. How do we not have a small office that deals with people like uh, like the woman uh, Ryan you interviewed? Uh, who has difficulties, how do we not have a small office someplace to deal with emergencies like that and hook, uh, hook people like that up uh, with, uh, with doctors? Um, I, just, a- I, I don't understand how there, there, there's a break like that. It strikes me we have more of an incompetence problem than a capacity problem on small well, issues like that, and it shouldn't and it We're shouldn't running occur. out of runway there, Bob. Sorry, I'll catch you back after the break to finish that thought. Uh, where we'll talk about the Prime Minister's Big Show reopening embassy. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith, on Free For All Friday, where we dig into the biggest stories of the week. And this week, with we have with me Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel at National Public Relations and a former Ontario Liberal Chief of Staff, and Ryan Price, News Director and Afternoon Drive host on CFAX 1070 in Victoria, B.C. And just before the break, Bob was making an excellent point about health care and the issue in this country, and I had to cut him off because I have no choice. So, Bob, I was hoping that you can get back to that and sort of finish your thought. My, my last thought on, on, uh, on, on, uh, on the last topic was um, Ryan had interviewed this woman, um, uh, Janet Mort. Uh, she couldn't get uh, a doctor. I, I'm just saying that there's got to be a small office set up in British Columbia and here in Ontario to help particularly seniors and others who are looking for a family doctor. All she needs to do is find a doctor to fill prescriptions. That this is not a capacity problem. This is an incompetence problem. We should be able to hook somebody like that up within 24 hours to take care of what is really a small problem. Um, And uh, it strikes me that uh, we need to do better. Yeah, I I mean, I agree. Like she's in, go go ahead, Ryan. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I think there is here in BC at least a system that you can uh, that the government runs, which is to try to connect you to family doctors, which I believe she did as well. Uh, the problem is there's just a dwindling number of doctors available regardless. So I guess the government could hire a special doctor who just sits there and all day long just renews seniors' prescriptions. I guess that could be a, a, a Band-Aid. But uh, there is a setup to try to connect people with doctors. It's just so behind because there's just no doctors to connect people to. Yeah. So we have a bit of a, I think it's interesting to take though, because I, you know, Bob's right, there's some stats that say things are working. I think we're hearing, it, it's interesting to me from a PR perspective, right? Because you see the conservative, at least in Ontario, of the unions and the rolling out of polls and all this kind of stuff. And there's certainly a campaign there. Um, but I also feel like, you know, we hear this woman's story and clearly 
the fu- system itself isn't functioning in the way that works for people. And we kind of like, wrap wanna... ourselves in the flag, right, and talk about universal health care. And sometimes I think we should question whether or not it's effective, even if it is universal. Right. Yeah. And I just want to say that, uh, you know, PR aside, there are, are things like that story of of the woman, Janet Mort, that that sort of explained that it's not working. But it's beyond just the family doctors. It's the whole system. It's the nurses. It's staffing in general. And I know you you let off the segment uh, with with talking about ER closures. Uh, we've seen that here, too, uh, just on Vancouver Island in the, the northern part of Vancouver Island. Some smaller towns like uh, one called Port McNeil back in July had to several times close their ER and direct all patients to another town that was, I believe, hours away because these are fairly remote areas. And there's another situation where it doesn't matter what the PR says. There is a hard fact. An ER, an emergency room from a community with no other options that were within hours, had to close because there were no staff. And this is doctors, this is nurses, this is the whole system. Something's wrong. And I think it's it's bigger than just money. I think it's cost of living. It's the working conditions that have dragged everybody down during the pandemic. There's a lot going on here, which is why we can't just snap our fingers and solve it. But yeah. we've got to start taking it more seriously. Uh, I, I, I agree. I think there's four or five things that need to be done. First of all, it's going to cost more money. And we've got to come to that conclusion pretty quick in terms of wages and in terms of proper working uh, 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 conditions. We've got to fast track foreign credentials way faster than we're doing here in Ontario. I give this government credit, uh, the Ford government and particularly uh, Minister Monty McNaughton credit. They've they've been the best in 30 years at trying to get to handle the foreign credentials issue. But we've got to double down. We've got to get more people in the system in a lot faster uh, uh, manner. We also need nurses aides. Uh, Nurses are doing a million other things other than nursing. And we need to get them back focused on what their core responsibilities should be to as well. And and we need more doctors. So, I mean, this is going to cost money and we need to be uh, realistic about it. Uh, the province has got to put in more money. Uh, the federal government needs to probably put in more money and uh, provide more support. But there isn't going to be an answer that's going to clean this up in 90 days. This is going to take a couple of years to get this back on track. And people think that doctors are very well-to-do and are making tons of money. But when you have a place like Victoria, and I think Toronto's even worse, where a basic starter home is over a million dollars, and that's just for your bare-bones starter home, and you're spending over a million dollars, and then you're coming into it with a whole bunch of medical debt because of your time in med school, uh, doctors are not setting up in places like Victoria because they just can't afford it they're they're not making enough money to afford living in a place like victoria and this is doctors we're talking about so there's another thing that has to be addressed and again back to money for sure and i I, that i think you know we'll continue to watch it uh i do want to squeeze in topic here uh we're canada an update on ukraine we like to follow that on the show um so we've got about four minutes to the panelists so i'm going to set your clocks now uh canada will be sending military trainers to the united kingdom to help teach ukrainians how to fight invading russian forces defense minister nita anon announced yesterday this new support we are fulfilling our promise to resume large-scale training under operation unifier I have authorized the deployment of up to 225 Canadian Armed Forces personnel to the United Kingdom, where they will train new Ukrainian military recruits. 
Uh, the majority of the deployed Canadian forces will work as trainers, supported by a command and control element in a military base in southeast England. This is the first cohort of uh, forces personnel. They'll be departing from Edmonton. Uh, she also notes uh, Canada was working to finalize an agreement to supply 39 armored combat support vehicles. Now, meanwhile, that's going on. As you may remember, the Prime Minister made a great big show of opening the embassy in Kiev uh, May 8th. Had a ceremony, said it's all open. So, of course, media went back, or folks went back to visit the property this week, and the only signs of life were three security guards crammed in a small out, outhouse down the side of the structure. Uh, and there's a sign on the door that says, uh, Canadian, that services are temporarily suspended due to security situation. So, to me, it feels like, one, it's great news that we're participating in a training mission. I think that's an important thing. But, two, I again throw shade at the government for great fanfare, and then you have a sign on the door at the embassy that says it's still closed. Uh, so, Bob, what do you make of the story? Are we doing enough in Ukraine? Am I just being overly cynical about the PM's announcement and the fact that it's not actually open at the embassy? Or is that just, I'm just picking on him a little bit? Or, or what do you make of this story? You know what? I, th- I think they're, I think it's fair to have some criticism of them on this issue. Look, are we doing enough in the Ukraine? I think we are. I think we're doing actually a pretty good job. We've provided a lot of financial support, both military and civilian. We've provided uh, weapons. We've been very strong on the sanctions issue. The prime minister's physically visited himself. We've been accepting re- refugees. Um, we've got the largest uh, group of expat soldiers comes from Canada who are fighting in the in the Ukraine right now. So, and Christia Freeland, uh, our deputy prime minister of Ukrainian descent, has been one of the international leaders kind of coordinating all this effort. So I think we've done a pretty good job overall as Canada. This is just foreign affairs goofiness um, on the embassy thing. I think they got a little ahead of themselves saying we're going to reopen up because the prime minister was going there. And then, uh, and then they didn't reopen up. Well, one, they should have informed the minister that they hadn't, uh, or she should have known that it, that it wasn't uh, a reopened. Or, or two, they should have issued a statement saying it's not safe enough. Therefore, we're, you know, our our services are available in uh, in X other city. Um, they didn't really do that. So I think it's a bit of a breakdown of communications. That's the government's fault. Uh, but I think overall, uh, they've done a good job in the Ukraine. All right, Ryan, I have about uh, 45 seconds left to you. What do you make of this story? Oops. Oh, yeah, no worries. Uh, I cut Bob off last time with all of my talking. <laughs> you guys are doing it to each other. It's sorry, about, sorry about that. <laughs> no, only, only fair that uh, it, it comes back around. No, I, I think just in real short, I, I am happy with Canada's contribution. I think the whole world needs to stand up against uh, an aggressor like Russia who is just ignoring international norms and crossing borders and invading neighboring countries. So uh, is, I know there's a delicate line to walk when you're antagonizing a nuclear power, but at the same time, I think Canada is doing <laughs> enough. Maybe, maybe we could even do more. I don't know. That's that's what I think. I'm, I'm happy so far, except maybe we could do more. Yes, that's my short story. That's a great short I like story. That. I also like the there's a de- delicate balance to walk when antagonizing yeah. a nuclear power, I think, is a very yeah. fair I always keep that in mind. That's that's always in the back of my mind on this story is, you know, I'd like to do more to a point because I don't want those to start flying around. All right. Big dog, Uh, little dog. Next up, eight Canadians have challenged the government to give them access to magic mushrooms. Should they get it? That's next on the panel. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we unpack the biggest stories of the week with some of the smartest people in the country. And joining me today Bob, is Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel at National Public Affairs, Public Relations, and former Ontario Liberal Chief of Staff, and Ryan Price, News Director and Afternoon Drive host on CFAX 1070 in Victoria, B.C. So this story is fascinating. Eight Canadians have filed a charter challenge against the federal government and the Minister of Health regarding their access to psilocybin. Psilocybin. I'm going to have a hard time this whole segment. But basically that is magic mushrooms for you at home and and the therapy that uses the mushrooms. So Thomas Hartle, the first Canadian to legally consume psilocybin for medical purposes, is one of the plaintiffs in the charter challenge. He was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer in 2016. He joined Tamara Chair on the Evan Solomon Show this week and described the anxiety he felt before taking a therapy. Uh, dealing with uh, end-of-life anxiety, of course, is something that is not uncommon for a lot of people who have a uh, terminal diagnosis like myself. This was uh, a problem for me that was really uh, escalating over time. The idea of my own mortality was really pressing on me pretty hard. Uh, Hartle's cancer has spread throughout his abdominal cavity. He has tumors in 51 locations, 47 of which are undetectable through medical scans, leaving doctors unable to offer a prognosis on how much time he may have left. Now, he went through his first session with psilocybin in August 2020, and he went on to say this about it. Prior to doing my psychedelic therapy session, I, I wouldn't have even been able to say those words without, uh, you know, breaking down emotionally, as you can see, because I can talk about those things now. Um, they are not nearly so hot and painful for me to deal with since I've had a chance to uh, to deal with them through that. So he said taking the psychedelic basically made it easier for him to reach those places emotionally that are difficult for him to talk about his end-of-life distress. Um, and it's allowed him to kind of process that. Now, Spencer Hawkskill is the CEO of Therapistle, a BC-based nonprofit that has previously worked with each of the plaintiffs to help them secure legal access to the drugs. Spencer told Tamara that the hurdles they faced to get access is ridiculous. To expect people to have to wait upwards of a year uh, or to have to jump through hoops that take them and their doctors sometimes weeks or months uh, to fill out forms, it's, it's unacceptable. And, and we need to make this access a little bit smoother for people. So this this to me is fascinating in that obviously we've seen some movement in the country around we've obviously legalized cannabis. Um, folks use that um, for medical, you know, different medical things as well as for recreational purposes. We've had conversation in the country and certainly covered it on the show about de- decriminalizing small amounts of drugs, particularly actually Vancouver, I know, is sort of leading the charge on that. Uh, but to you first, Ryan, w- do you think that the government should look at legalizing psychedelics in Canada for these kinds of treatments, or is that too far? No, I I completely agree with it. I generally believe that drugs of all kinds in Canada should be decriminalized, even legalized. And I I say that opening up the door to a huge issue, because I know that that drugs are a huge problem for, for so many people, and you can't just do the one. You also have to increase supports for people who struggle with drug use. You have to... It, <laughs> we, we talked earlier about the shortage and the, the crisis in the healthcare system, so I know that's a really difficult thing to say, like, just throw more healthcare at this as well at the same time <laughs> you do it. But um, that said, I do think the right direction for this country is to move away from the war on drugs, the the uh, the criminalizing criminalizing all drugs. I, I think that's the way to go and treat it more like a healthcare issue. And then the other part of that is uh, here in BC, we've already kind of done a little bit of that. We got permission from the federal government to 
not legalize but decriminalize the possession of small amounts of of hard drugs because of the overdose crisis that we are experiencing here. So we're already kind of moving that way, it seems. And if we're already moving that way, and if other countries like Portugal have moved that way with great success, why can't we just just do it? Why can't the federal government say, look, the approach we've taken for the last few decades clearly isn't working. Let's try something new. Uh, And I believe that this magic mushroom issue, you know, while not quite directly connected to all the things I was just talking about, does fit into that. Why, Why are all of these things being being uh being criminalized especially things that might have medical applications like marijuana and like the uh, psilocybin you can pronounce psilocybin better than me so you can <laughs> say that more often right <laughs> i can i could say it before the show and then literally started talking about it on air but i mean you it's make such some a weird looking points. word it's a terrible looking word it, sh- it should only be spelled phonetically um, this is Radio show host problems. Um, but Bob, you know, one of the interesting things about this is I think early on in, in, cause obviously part of it is, you know, Canadians can go to the government and they can actually ask for exemptions. Um, and it's a very specialized, you know, process that you go through with the health minister. They grant them and they have been historically granted for certain kinds of psychedelics, um, to be used. And that was early on their mandate. And then my understanding from talking to folks is it's sort of ground to a halt. And now we have this challenge. And even though they do grant these exemptions, as pointed out, it takes a year. Like it takes forever and these people are suffering in the interim. So, Bob, do you think we need to look at decriminal, like legalizing or decriminal, or I said legalizing this? Or do we need to look at a different system for approving these exemptions? I think we need to look at how do we fix the problem and how do we do it in the most timely manner. If that means legalizing it, then legalize it. Uh, It strikes me here, we have more of a government bureaucratic problem. Why does it take a year if a doctor's recommended somebody, if they are, you know, at a at a very precarious stage of health in their life, why is it taking upwards of 12 or 14 months to get approval? That would be my first question. And, and, and what, what's taking so long in that approval process? So it strikes me we have a government incompetence problem uh, as much as we have, uh, as, as much as we have a, a health problem. I am in favor of le- legalizing uh, psychedelics. I'm not even going to attempt the other word. Um, so... <laughs> So, so I'll leave that to you guys. You're, you're the pros. Uh, but look, I, I'm in favor of legalizing uh, things. I'm in favor of legalizing drugs and moving a much uh, closer to the port, uh, Portugal uh, model. I was in Vancouver last week, and I made a point of driving down East Hastings just to see it. Uh, it is a war zone. The war on drugs has been an abject failure. It's done. It's over. We've got to try new routes, uh, and we've got to try new uh, methods to uh, to deal with uh, to deal with the issues. And uh, this is yet another example of it. And Ryan, I think Bob makes some great points about there about the war on drugs. Generally, you talked about being in favor of um, legalizing or decriminalizing. I'm also in the same boat with both of you, right? And I, I'm, my guess is we probably fit across the political spectrum here. We've had a federal government, I've, and I, I'm not the biggest fan of theirs most of the time, but I will credit them for the legalization of marijuana, I think, for more of a, a progressive or you know view of, of this issue. What do you think it's going to take to get them to do something like that nationally? Yeah, I, I, th- I do wonder that because they've already gone the route with marijuana, like you said. They have granted BC this decriminalization of small amounts as an experiment. I, I, I do start to wonder if it's starting to get the kind of broad appeal that you just mentioned. I think people across political spectrums are starting to come to the conclusion that the war on drugs doesn't work. We need to do something else if, if 
if the public is now adopting that stance, not everybody, but, you know, I think a broad majority of people are starting to come around to that. Why, why are governments lagging behind? Maybe that's just the nature of, of our system of government. It does take time. These things move slowly. And maybe that's just the way we're headed once we catch up. I wonder if it'll be an election issue when we do hit the next election, if, if this kind of thing could be a, a winning platform item. I don't know. Or maybe the parties are just finding it's not one that's uh, that's winning them any favors, so they're not they're not pushing it. I wonder if they've got some polling on it. If the, the liberals have done polling that says that's that's not a great issue, and we're in a minority government, so let's just not rock the boat for now. Maybe we need a another majority government to come in uh, that feels a bit more confident before they start making big moves like that. Yeah, and maybe Bob, quick twenty seconds to you. You've advised government. If you're advising the federal health minister, what would you say to her to do? Or him? I would say get moving, uh, get her done. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a big enough uh, issue politically. I suspect there's just been so many other issues on the plate. It's kind of got shoved off the table. Uh, time to bring it back on. Time to look at it. Time to move. Here, here. So panel unanimously says we should look at this. And uh, if, if get her done, Bob's word, get her done. <laughs> Get her done. I like it. I like it a lot. Well, that's a great. It's a great debate. It's an important one I wanted to have because I think it's an issue um, that that we should look at. And they should look at. Now, uh, next up, it's the last segment, which means we get to have a little bit of fun. And the question I'm going to put to the panel and you, if you want to text in at seven ten ten, if you could erase yourself from the internet, would you? Find out what Canadians and the panel have to say about that next on Free for All Friday. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I got to say, the music is on, like, rotate, so I never know what's going to intro me in. And that's the first time I've had, like, a country sort of vibe going on in the back out of the show. Uh, I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith, uh, taking you into your weekend. Hopefully, this is Free For All Friday, where we talk about the biggest stories of the week with some amazing folks. And today we have Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel at National Public Relations and a former Ontario Liberal Chief of Staff, and Ryan Price, News Director and Afternoon Drive host on CFAX 1070 in Victoria, B.C. So this one to me is fascinating. Um, a company did a, sur- a cybersecurity company did a survey of Canadians and found that this is more than one third of Canadians said they would completely wipe out their presence on the internet if they could. This is Adriana's Warmenhoven from NordVPN. The internet has an iron memory. Uh, we have a saying, if something is on the internet, it will stay on the internet, no matter how many laws there are or no matter how many people try to delete it. So basically, if you're there, you're stuck. Now, NordVPN does recommend deleting all social media profiles you don't use or set them as private. Um, you can also apparently make deletion requests to companies asking them to remove that about you. But what's kind of fascinating to me, and I want to ask both you, Bob and Ryan, um, and I'll go to you first, Bob. Would you do this? So I, I have a Facebook account, which I would love to just remove from the face of the earth. But I need it for the marketplace situation, and I feel like it's still a way to keep track of people. But I would just love if I could just hit a button and just erase parts of parts of that. Otherwise, I'm really careful about my presence online. Like, my Instagram is for personal only, um, not for work or any of the, kind of the media stuff that I do. And Twitter is where I kind of live in my public sphere. But, Bob, if you could push a button and erase yourself from the Internet, would you do it? 
Well, the first thing I would erase is the post-pandemic waistline photos. Uh, I think if we, if, if, I think if we start there, uh, I, I might be in favor of this. But look, like a lot of people, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the with the social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, but I'm also in the communications business, and I should be there, and I should be on those platforms because. Uh, I'm also secretly, uh, I go on TikTok from time to time because I like Karen videos. They're hilarious. Uh, <laughs> but so I would say at the end of the day, my answer is no. I think what you need to do is self-regulate yourself on these. I find I'm using my social media a lot less. I find Twitter too toxic. Uh, and then I find if I used to be updating two or three times a week, I kind of update maybe once once a week now. So I think there, there may be a gradual decline in some of the, uh, the usage of, uh, of uh, social media. But um, it's also had a positive side. There's a bunch of folks that I like that I maybe haven't seen for years who I'm kind of back in touch with. I think that's one of the positive uh, parts of it. So, look, uh, on balance, I would keep it. But I think you, I would keep it, but I would certainly use it less than I have in the last few years. It's funny, by the way, Bobby, you say that you've been using it less because I'm the same. I used to use Twitter way more. And then basically for me going through the pandemic and watching kind of people get canceled. And I just was like, you know what? Me being funny on the Internet is not worth all of the aggravation of it. It's just it's too risky. Um, Ryan, what about you? What's your social media? um, If you could erase yourself from the Internet, would you do so? You know, I think the answer would be no, because just like Bob, professionally, it is such a useful tool for a radio station that uh, is trying to disseminate news. It's uh, I find Facebook is still a very useful place to to get that out there. Uh, Twitter is a good place too for you know instant news. Uh, we so I, I find that I'm still very engaged in all of these platforms professionally. LinkedIn useful for recruiting uh, and hiring, all of that kind of stuff. Personally, though, as an individual, I've really found I've dialed back my social media use because I found that it was unhealthy in a way. Um, I found that even trying to keep up my professional Twitter profile and apologies to anybody out there listening who follows me on Twitter and thinks I'm just very quiet in the last few years. I did find that for a while I was very into it, but I got into all the metrics and, you know, why did why did my uh, tweets this month not get as many views as last month how can i change up the wording or put a better photo on to get more engagement and i was really getting into all of those kind of thought processes and then also you'd be on your twitter and even though you're you've left work all of a sudden people start erupting in in comments or nastiness and you're on your weekend and your phone's getting alerts because of it and you just can't leave it and i found that that was starting to affect me so i i've really disengaged from some of my my social media use personally, but professionally, I still find it a very useful tool that I don't think I'd ever want to completely disengage with. But kind of like Bob said, I think self-regulating is the way to go. And we, this is all so new. I mean, like we didn't even have iPhones. What is it? It's, it's, it's 15 years ago. iPhones didn't even exist or something like that. And, and the apps and the social media that, that followed in, in their prevalence uh, are still fairly new to us. And we're all still learning about the effects they can have and how we deal with them. So um, for me, it's been a learning process and that's where I'm at. Uh, so I guess maybe is my, <laughs> it's my answer. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Some, so I have to leave, actually, but I will say, but for the grace of God, go I, that there was no 
Facebook had just started at the tail end of my university time. Um, so there's oh, no yeah. evidence of my, uh, my, my, um, I don't even know what I would call it, but the good times that were had, uh, do not there, exist anywhere other than people's there'll memories. There'll be no, think, uh, there'll be no war crimes trial for you, Amanda. You've escaped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. I want to jump to this next topic. We just got a couple minutes left in the show. Um, in recent days, celebrities like Taylor Swift, Drake, Travis Scott, Kylie Jenner, even Oprah have been called out for how much they contribute to CO2 emissions through private jet uses. Even the prime minister has been criticized. Now, there's been a long history of celebrities in particular sort of jumping around and saying, you know, you should do more for the planet. Leonardo DiCaprio comes to mind while he relaxes with models on mega yachts, dumping God knows how much, you know, fuel and things into the into the ocean. So uh, I think the prime minister's criticism, you know, to me, it's a bit of a, a balancing act there. He's a prime minister of the country. He cannot travel commercial. So he has to get around the country to meet with people. And, and I think that to me is a little less warranted. Um, but to you first, Bob, do you, do you take umbrage from this this thing with people flying around on private planes and the CO2 emissions, or is it sort of like, eh, like, plus ça change? A little bit of both on this one. I, I would say a lot of these people are a little too self-righteous, uh, and they're very vocal, but they don't really take a, a really hard look at their life. I mean, Leo DiCaprio on the big yachts in Nice is a perfect example of that. Um, there are a number of them that do need to get around uh, uh, private uh, on, on private jets related to their uh, schedule. If you're touring, as an example, if you're a major artist, so on and so forth. A lot of them have carbon offsets. Um, and if they're doing those sort of things and in their normal day to day life, you know, living a environmentally friendly lifestyle, I think that's fine. But I think a little less self-righteousness on this one. I think of Harry and Meghan is a good example of that. They're, they are always very self-righteous, but they're also the first people to literally uh, run if they have to, to make it to a private plane. So, you know, I think, uh, I think there's a, a bit of a balance on this issue. All right, Ryan, we've got 15 seconds to you, and then i got to go because uh, I could cut off at 159. So are you irritated, or do we think it's just part of the business? Well, I, I think a little mild irritation, but there are so many other sources of pollution that are way worse that I feel like getting bogged down in some of those is maybe misdirecting from some of the bigger polluters we need to worry about more so. How's that? Perfect. Amazing. All right, Bob, right. Ryan, thank you so much. This was an awesome roundtable. Loved your thoughts. Loved hearing from you. Thank you to Tony, producer, and Sam. I'm Amanda Galbraith. I will see you next Friday.